I have the cure for jet lag. I was on a, a very long flight recently, and I landed, and I hadn't eaten the entire flight. It was like 10, 11 hours, right? And I watched Ferris Bueller twice, and I ate an entire pack of hobnobs. <laughs> twice. That was my plane experience. And so I had pr- pretty bad jet lag, and so I, I knew I had to stay up. And so I, I, I went to a barbecue restaurant. This was by myself, and I ordered an inordinate amount. I think it was actually three platefuls that, that in the end came of just pure meat. <laughs> and I gave myself the worst indigestion I've ever had. But I did manage to stay up until like 10 o'clock and then go to bed. So you did the thing that, that people say you're supposed to do to cure jet lag. Which I don't is... think Ferris Bueller's Day Off and Hobnobs is the normal thing. That you're no, no, no. To but do. eating a meal at normal meal times for where you are is supposed to like like shift you. Yeah, set your body clock. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like the person next to me who worked the entire flight also found it very odd that I was just eating biscuits and watching Ferris Bueller on repeat. (laughs) (laughs) Not hydrating lots, Matt. Not, you know, putting on an eye mask. Uh, No, I did get in-flight hand cream, which was I thought was pretty odd. Did you fly first class, business class? I did not, no. I've never flown first class or business in my life. You got hand cream, that's all that matters. So... Today, we're recording this on iOS 13 launch day, whoop, whoop. and I just got the notification that our 1Password 7.4 update for iOS was was approved. So Excellent. I'm actually going to go and hit the button to release it right now <laughs> while we're recording. That's multitasking. <laughs> also a big week for us, we had uh, 1Password Advanced Protection come out. Yes. Tell us about that, man. I want to hear a little bit more about this. So it's, uh, it's actually pretty interesting. We have a lot of larger companies now who have all these sorts of kind of policies and and stuff like that that you know employees must have a master password of more characters or it must include numbers or you know something that that is completely custom to their business and they've agreed with their security team and advanced protection is really built around all of these policies and actually enforcing them in software rather than you know, just relying on employees. Things like 2FA and things, right? Yeah, yeah. You can, you know, enforce uh, two-factor for one password throughout the in- entire company. It's pretty cool. Um, you, you can also enforce uh, security keys as well. So, yeah, there's some really great tools there. Uh, the firewall rules are, are possibly my favorite from from kind of playing with it. Uh, you, you can basically, you know, block entire countries um, from accessing your account. And And, yeah, it's just, you know, part of these security policies and compliance and and all that kind of stuff that enterprises really need in order to to use something like 1Password. You can go on the blog, blog blog.1password.com, and you can watch a walkthrough. So, Matt, I believe we have our first ever correction for the podcast last week. I mean, we had a good run, right? Yeah, we had a good run. It's been like, what, 27 (laughs) episodes? This is the 27th episode. It is the 27th episode. And no one has ever sent us any corrections. Pretty good going, I think. I'm impressed by that. But Jeffrey Goldberg, our our security head, got in, in touch... And he did send us some corrections. I'm glad someone's keeping check on us. Though. So we described a, a zero day attack and, and said kind of that's what Google's Project Zero is looking for when we when we discussed it last week. And what's actually the case is that 
you know, Google's Project Zero is aimed not at finding zero days. Instead, it's at making zero days hard. So their aim is actually to find vulnerabilities before the bad guys do and help vendors patch them. So the the Apple case was unusual in that Project Zero only found it after it was being exploited. Additionally, Apple released a fix within a week of Project Zero reporting it to them in February. So there were a couple of things that we got wrong there. But um, yeah, thanks to uh, Goldberg for sending that in. Uh, so let's get on to some Watchtower Weekly. Yeah, let's go for it. There's an interesting one this week that I, I kind of question the validity of. So a scammer successfully deepfaked CEO's voice to fool underling. Underling. <laughs> First of all, don't call people an underling. That's obnoxious at best. Yeah. Into transferring 243,000. So basically a person rung up. He believed it was the, the CEO uh, to his parent company based in Germany. The German accented caller told him to send uh, €220,000 to a Hungarian supplier within the hour. A fraud expert said that the victim recognised his superior's voice because it had a hint of a German accent and the same melody. I mean, there's no evidence here that it's actually deepfake, first of all. Could be just someone talking a bit with a German accent. I'm not going to attempt that. Um, Who actually reported this story as well? So Gizmodo picked it up. But I believe that they've kind of added a few embellishments and, and picked it up from others. I'm not actually sure who picked it up first. I, I believe it might have been the Wall Street Journal. So I, I think there's a bit of sensationalism here around deepfakes because, yeah. you know, it's it's popular at the moment to talk about. But there's kind of been no no backing up of, of facts or, or anything about how anybody did this. And I think the real failing here is the fact that you could ring them up and say, can you transfer 222 grand? And there is no kind of software in place to to make a check there. The uh, the fraud expert, apparently, um, believes commercially available software was used to facilitate the fraudulent executive impersonation. So, I mean, do you remember a long time ago there's that iOS app that uh, made you sound like a robot? I wonder if there's one that just makes you sound a bit German. Oh yeah. Are you talking about like the T Pain auto auto tune thing or something? I don't else? think you can auto tune yourself German, but um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we could try. Uh, yeah, that's that's very true. Uh, but uh, I I also think that like the voice based controls here are the issue, right? Because I mean, if you think about all the calls that we record. I could definitely cut up Shiner's voice and make him say something like that that he doesn't actually say. <laughs> but, but but do you know what I mean? Like the the voice aspect of this alone is is a terrible way to 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 kind of authenticate something like a transaction of hundreds of thousands. It, it's just very odd. Yeah. Okay, so the next one comes from the BBC, and uh, I am uncomfortable about this. The the sex lives of app users have been shared with Facebook. So an in, in, intimate data, including when people have had sex, is being shared with Facebook, a study from Privacy International has found. So basically there's an app and... Well, there's a, a number of apps. Yes, so there, there's a number of apps in which you share these intimate details. One has been called Maya... Uh, another one is called My Period Tracker, and another is MIA. And yeah, basically they've been oversharing 
with Facebook. Oh, that is awful. These are are these like uh, are these like fertility tracking apps? Is that what these are? Yeah. So they kind of record pretty much everything, even to do with like your general health or your kind of more intimate kind of sexual health. So sure. things like your mood, what you eat and drink, your menstrual cycle. Um, yeah, as this headline is saying, like when you have sex, it's pretty sensitive information. How did this even make its way over to Facebook? <laughs> like what? So Facebook told the BBC, our, our terms of service actually prohibit developers from sending us sensitive information. Uh, we enforce against it. And, you know, when they learn that they are, they, they, they do things. Uh, so in, in addition to ads targeting on, on people's interests, you know, they, they don't actually, Facebook didn't use this information. So this is again, this this one's a little sensationalist as well. It's it's not nice. I think it's just because that data, yeah, yeah, is so sensitive, and you know, it's stuff that you want to be discreet about. So it feels a bit strange and weird that it's out in the world. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a- anything that you post in in kind of SDKs and stuff like this, I I, I don't know. I I think this. This is the kind of information that I would end-to-end encrypt. Yeah, for sure. Well, this is also like um, starting with iOS 13. This is you know Apple will be collecting a lot of this stuff, or, or sorry, has has the ability to store this type of information in the health app, which is all sort of backed by Apple's privacy practices and everything else. So I wonder if some of these apps are looking to move move that information over there instead. Yeah without making you feel too uncomfortable here, I do actually use one of these apps. I don't actually use one of the ones caught up in this study. but Well, thankfully. Thankfully, <laughs> yeah. And I don't have Facebook, so that's another, another good thing. But yeah, I can imagine if you do have one of these apps and you have Facebook, then you might want to think about kind of looking closer at their privacy policies and maybe switching to an alternative or, you know, just quit Facebook. <laughs> we say it time and time again. Right, but... right. I mean, you know, it certainly is a bit of an invasion of privacy. Uh, I think that it doesn't necessarily become embarrassing unless your numbers are really, really high (laughs) or really, really low. (laughs) But they are really useful. Like the data you can find out is, you know, invaluable and it would be a shame for people or users to stop using these apps because of this kind of sensationalist headline. So hopefully people can. Yes find an alternative or as you say um maybe go with the apple what what are they calling it is it just well it's it's they're they're um they're adding it to the health the health app so yeah. there's a lot of there's a lot of apps in the store uh that integrate with HealthKit, and so uh it, they will donate their data to or sort of make their data available to the health app or read information from the health app and so i've used it in the past with like headspace it will tell it will sort of mark off like oh you you know like i was mindful today for 15 yeah. minutes um and so what's neat is you could get to start to see trends like if with the health app sort of uh, accumulating all that information you can start to see trends and i can actually see you know i could go and say like well here's what my heart rate was when i was meditating and stuff like that and, and nice and so this is just a whole other category of data and i know that Ever since the health app was introduced, it was one of like the very first pieces of feedback that people filed. They're like, "How come there's no there's no period tracking? Like, where's the yeah. the women's health information that ideally fits in perfectly here?" And so, with iOS 13, they they finally brought that 
brought that out, which is really cool. Nice. Okay. So they're just incorporating it into the health app then. Yes. Yep. Nice. Did you, uh, going going back to Facebook, surely, did you uh, see that they plan to release the off Facebook activity app, which allows you to opt out of um, them tracking you outside of Facebook, <laughs> or at least them telling you that they're, you know, tracking you outside of Facebook. The off Facebook activity includes information that businesses and organizations share with us about your interactions with them, such as visiting their apps or websites. Oh, that sounds horrible. <laughs> <laughs> you, you can basically use this uh, use this app. You install the Facebook app, and then and then you can kind of clear your history from it. Uh, I would rather just delete Facebook. <laughs> but Facebook said defensively in a blog post about the new tool, this is how much of the internet works. <laughs> oh, God. Yes, because they built it like this. <laughs> yeah. Yikes. Would you folks like to talk about Firefox's new VPN? Yeah. Uh, so The Verge reports reported on this one the other day. The Firefox private network, which claims to be a secure encrypted path to the web, uh, is essentially a Firefox-made VPN, though Mozilla does not call it this. Uh, and VPN is a virtual private network. Uh, for those that, you know, sort of bringing people up on the lingo, uh, virtual private networks, we've talked about these before, they allow you to connect to the internet through, uh, through securely through uh, a remote server, and it's supposed to protect you from any sort of uh, intrusions on, on the local network. So if you're in a coffee shop and you don't know, you know, who might be snooping around on the network or if they've installed any sort of uh, monitoring software themselves, you can connect with the VPN and it should bypass all of that. The Firefox private network seems like it could be useful, but it does have its limits. It's browser-based VPN, so it's only active while you're using Firefox. You'd have to install like a, a dedicated VPN app if you wanted to protect more of your internet traffic. So the, the Firefox private network thing is actually part of their test pilot program. These new features are, are part of a new privacy-centric product that is just kind of one shot, uh, step shy of, of general public release. Firefox has actually made another change, uh, which... It is really nice, which blocks third-party trackers by default. So before they had it as kind of a, a switch that you could turn on, you could like you know increase your privacy by blocking all these things. But now you know they're they're starting with Firefox version sixty-nine. Mozilla just you know flipped it on for everybody. All, all this uh, enhanced tracking protection, which is really awesome because you know only around twenty percent of Firefox users had it enabled last time. So. Yeah, they're, they're building a, a decent set of uh, kind of privacy-focused products. I, I think they're heading in a really exciting direction. Yeah, and I, you'll hear Mika, our guest interview this week, she goes into detail a little bit more about all that kind of stuff and what's in the works for Mozilla. She was a lot of fun to talk to. Uh, super smart, really cool. I, I enjoyed that interview quite a bit. So joining me today is Mika Shah. Mika is the head of product legal at Mozilla. Now, typically, Mika, uh, when someone gives someone else advice, they say, I'm not a lawyer, but, and, and then they, they continue to give advice. Do you get to say the opposite? Do you say, I'm a lawyer, and this is what I think you should do? <laughs> I actually try to say I'm not. I, I try to tell people I'm not a lawyer, uh, because I think when I come in with I'm a, the I'm a lawyer approach, people get scared or have their own ideas of what that means. Um, and for anyone who's worked with me, you know, I don't wear suits to work. I look like a normal person. I can be funny too. Uh, and I try to just get to, you know, what is the issue we're trying to solve together and not bring in the, well, 
I'm a lawyer, so I get to make a call here. <laughs> very nice. Very nice. Uh, I think it's pretty safe to say that our listeners have heard of Mozilla and Firefox. Can you give us a little bit of background about yourself and your role at Mozilla? Yeah, actually, today is a very special day for me. It is my six-year work anniversary wow, at Mozilla. Congratulations. Thank you. So over those six years, I've always been product and data counsel at Mozilla. Uh, today, I'm our associate general counsel for product and privacy. And it's been just an awesome time for several years working not just on Firefox, which a lot of people know about, but a lot of different types of products and services. So that's covered things like a mobile operating system, video conferencing, virtual reality apps, video conferencing apps. Over the time I've been in the weeds with our engineering teams, our product teams, trying to figure out, you know, what's this new thing? What's the problem we're trying to solve? How do we help people? Uh, but then at the same time, how do we approach this from a privacy conscious way? Since at Mozilla, that's actually been always very important to us. I've learned a lot from our teams over the last six years. And then at some point, so Mozilla, many people know this, we are an open source company. Our roots are when if anyone has used the Netscape browser, anyone remembers that? The Mozilla team was the open source project at Netscape. And so when they left, they created the Mozilla Foundation. And the foundation's goal was to work on Firefox, this open source browser. Uh, but it wasn't just about open source. The, the sort of values behind that was also that it should be privacy-centric, security is important, transparency is important. And so several years ago, actually, someone came to the legal team and said, hey, you know, we're an open source company. We're trying to bring a lot about what we do at Mozilla to the public. So what can you do as a legal team to do your bit? So when you approach any group of lawyers and tell them to stop being secretive about whatever they do and tell the world, I think the first reaction is, uh, that's really scary. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if there is anything that we can share. But actually, this work that we do in privacy, the work that we do on our, with our product teams is where we felt like that there was something interesting there. And that's how we ended up starting uh, the Lean Data Practices Framework. And that's what we've been sharing with the world, with other companies, because there's there's really no, no secret sauce to that. It's definitely something that was informed by how Mozilla thinks about privacy. Um, but we found that it's helpful for others. That's really cool. Talking about Lean Data and Lean Data Practices, why is that in companies' best interest? Like, what what's sort of the the sales pitch when you go and talk to somebody about this? What what What's the hook? So I think in the last several years... There's been a heightened awareness about you know, privacy and security. This means something. If you're a startup, you start because you're trying to solve a problem. If you're a large company, you're trying to solve a problem. You're not out there in the world generally because you want to comply with law. No company's sole existence in life is I want to comply with you know, a data protection law. Like what they're trying to do is offer an amazing service to their users um, and create relationships with their users so that they come back to that service. And so Lean Data Practices was sort of instilled in that philosophy of at Mozilla, we have this framework of going about making better product design that happens to also be privacy-centric, uh, that also happens to have a lot of great security elements to it, and that also happens to focus on explaining things to people in a way that they can understand. And so that's my pitch when I talk to other companies about lean data practices and why should you do this? It's really uh, a very simple framework for applying data and privacy principles to product design. And I think companies, a lot of companies, OKRs. OKRs started at Google. People use OKRs because they think it's going to help them optimize you know, what should they be focusing on. 
people use agile software development because that sort of system of working in sprints, and there's a lot of other practices within the agile movement that made sense for engineers. And so in the same way, we've designed lean data practices to be this very flexible, it's a framework. It's not something that you do right or wrong. It's just something that you imbibe within your own systems or your own processes. And hopefully, if you get through it, then you can incorporate better privacy, better security, and have better relationships with your users. Do you think that, you know, because there are companies where that is certainly an afterthought, or it's not so so much baked into the DNA. Do you find that because you have a framework and it is pretty approachable, that you see sort of an ease of adoption there and that it, it starts to change the company culture when, when people really do sort of grab onto it? I think so. I think the reason is, so I'll tell you a little bit about the framework. There's three practices, uh, and those are build in better security into whatever your product or process is. Minimize the data that you have so that you're using what you need. You're using what you need either for functionality or because you need to understand some analytics and metrics and user journeys. But you're getting rid of the stuff that you realize doesn't really make sense or perhaps it's an old feature or old product. You don't need it anymore. So better security, better quality data. And then the third practice is better engagement with your audiences. And that, the better engagement with audiences, it could be for a B2B company, it could be your business customers, explaining things in a way that would make sense for their needs. For a B2C company, it's explaining things in a way that's better for your consumers. So that's the framework. And I think it has allowed... So what we've done so far is we've had a lot of roundtables. We've had really great opportunities to talk with tech companies um, around the world. And so we use the framework to just approach the discussion about privacy and security. What are the challenges that companies are having? What are practices that people can share with each other? And this framework has just opened the door to thinking about it and talking about it rather than an open-ended, oh my goodness, it's privacy. How do I be better at privacy? Like, or how do I be better at security? Like, how can you ever answer that question? There's always going to be ways to do that. So it's just, I think, a way of approaching and thinking about it that seems to go very well. Yeah, that makes good sense. How do you think companies can take complex issues like privacy information and, and sort of easily and accessibly make that understandable to their users? Well, I'll start with what I think companies shouldn't do, which is have an incredibly long privacy policy in small print at the very beginning of whenever you sign up for the service and then just expect, dump everything there and expect that that is the way that people will understand. So I think improving the privacy policy that exists, having one and improving it is definitely a small step. But our research actually shows, and, and this is our research talking with other companies, but also um, within our own products, that when a person is first signing up for an experience, a lot of them don't, surprisingly, <laughs> read the lengthy privacy notice. So that's probably not the best way. Right. So uh, we think that there is probably the better approach is to during the product experience, whatever the points in time are where sensitive data is, if there's a choice, creating moments in time for people to understand and make a decision in the context of what it means is probably the best way to do that. And so that could be, for example, the difference between an app that always has permission to access your location and an app that prompts you before that whatever that feature is for which that would be useful and asks you to make that choice in that moment. That's like a really simple example. You know, Dr. Ann Kabukian refers to this as privacy by design. 
I think that's a great term, but then it's like getting into, I would love to see more discourse of companies sharing with each other, like what are the better design elements? I think we have an idea of what bad design elements are, but sharing better ones um, to the moments in time for people to make a decision and then giving people choices. So we see a lot of companies that they are making the choice on behalf of the consumer to either do it all at the same time, rather than giving a person a choice of, hey, well, actually, if you don't want to give me your location, that's cool. You can still use my app. Uh, but you're just not going to get this feature. Yeah, for sure. You know, for for a long time, it, there's always there have been the jokes of of the iTunes terms and conditions, right? You go to you go to install an update for iTunes, and it's like here's the terms and conditions you need to agree to. And everyone everyone always says, look, I just want to get to my music. I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna click whatever the button is that gets me past this. And and sort of changing to that informed and sort of use case driven requests for information, I think, can shift. Not only you know how a company looks at, at the way that they collect the data, but also it does make it understandable for people and takes them out of this realm of informed consent or you know it sort of abstracted informed consent or implied informed consent and, and actually makes it cor- proper informed consent. Yeah, exactly. I think it's shifting the burden from people or put the burden on people to know everything about your data collection right. and shifting that burden to companies to explain during their product experience when it matters and giving people choices. Uh, when I say it that way, it just sounds so simple, right? But, but we, we don't do that. We don't see companies doing that. And, and that's just a shift on companies' parts to, to think about, hey, this is actually a part of our product experience. This is not just you know, legal compliance. Yeah. What have you seen the impact of, of GDPR has been on some of the, the conversations around privacy and, and everything else? Yeah, I think the best part of GDPR was that it created this awareness for companies that privacy matters. Before GDPR, and in many countries around the world, there were before GDPR data protection laws, even in Europe. But the enormous awareness that came after GDPR, we started to see fines, we started to see regulators saying, this isn't just a law that's on the books, but something we care about and we want companies to take action about. And I think the, the influence on American companies was incredibly powerful too, because in the US, we don't have comprehensive privacy legislation. A lot of tech companies are based in the U.S. And so I think it forced a lot of U.S. companies to provide more controls to people, to provide a little bit more transparency. I don't think we're 100% there, but I think it was definitely the start of a good thing. Yeah, for sure. I mean, when you put sort of a, a big stick behind it of, you know, the types of fines that we've seen levied against against some major companies, uh, I think that it does make people sort of sit up and start to pay attention to it. Yeah. Do you have any legislation that you would like to see pushed through to sort of improve privacy on the internet? Like, did you, is that something that you think about when you're out, you know, walking the dog and stuff? Is like, <laughs> you know what would be cool would be this. Yeah. When I'm walking the dog, I love to geek out on privacy and... <laughs> <laughs> Jeez, I didn't mean to pigeonhole you. (laughs) Yeah, I I do. I think that, like I mentioned, in the U.S., we don't have comprehensive privacy legislation. And I think that's really important. Um, I'm I'm glad that a lot of countries in the world are starting to make this a requirement. So at Mozilla, we have advocated in the U.S. for better privacy legislation. We've advocated for privacy legislation in lots of countries around the world, like in Kenya and in India. We've also advocated for better regulations so that governments who have access to personal data handle that information responsibly. We've 
Um, so this is a space that we think a lot about. I'm not kidding. I do think about it when I walk my dog. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that this is the time. Like definitely more governments are paying attention to this. And I think the reason is that their constituents are interested in this. And so that's where I think for consumers, this is also a time if when people complain to companies to say, hey, I actually want you to do more. Why don't you have a policy that makes any sense? Or I don't understand it. Answer these questions. Those are signals to companies for why they should change their practices because their customers care, which is um, going to create fast, faster change than probably on the regulatory side. Yeah, neat. Very, very cool. So switching over to sort of the, the browser aspect, Mozilla really seems to be leading the way with Firefox in terms of privacy-focused browsing. Uh, and some particularly bold moves have been made lately. Do you think that these moves need to be made in order to, to change the way data is used? Do you think that, that there sort of needs to be a standard bearer? I do. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, yeah, I do. And the reason is, I think a lot of people just think of a browser as, it's just a browser. It just seems like this boring app. But a browser is really incredibly powerful software because everything, you know, today our world is apps on phones or a computer at home and everything that you do there, you can also do on a browser. And, and a browser is your gateway to the web. And so, and you have to wonder, well, okay, what does the browser know about me? Um, what is the browser doing to help my experience of when I'm online? Because being online is a pretty important part of my life, my kids' life, my family, my work. Um, and so that's where at Mozilla, especially with Firefox, we've always felt that way. But in particular, recently, there's a lot of terrible sort of online tracking that happens. Uh, and so we're trying to do our part on the browser side to, to protect our users. There are features that are landing in Firefox. That, you know, and, and there's always an interesting, there's people who use Firefox because they know that it's a privacy oriented browser. Mm -hmm. There's people who just use it because they just need a browser and they think it's cool. And so we're, we're trying to make sure that we have a good product that works. Um, but like I said, we're baking in all of this really good foundational stuff because we think it's really critical to the web. You know, our roots are in Netscape. We've been around a really long time, uh, but over time, there's actually not that many browsers left. And so we think that it's really important for the browsers that are around to to do more for privacy and security. Nice. Uh, so what's next for Mozilla? So what's next for Mozilla? We have a lot of, like I said, we don't just work on Firefox. We have a lot of different products and services. So um, we have something called Mozilla Things, which is pretty cool. It's uh, an IoT project, which is, you know, if you... If you have a Google Home or Amazon Alexa or some other home device, uh, our Mozilla Things is trying to connect them uh, as a hub that's interoperable to connect all of those, which is pretty neat. Um, in Firefox, we are rolling out a lot of, like I mentioned, new features around privacy and security, which we think will be really good for um, Firefox users. And then on the data practices, we've actually designed what we call a data sprint. And so it's not just a framework. You know, we have a website, we have resources, we have a public toolkit, but we've done a lot of roundtables to talk about security and better user engagement and data minimization techniques. But in the Lean Data Sprint, it's a two-day sprinted session-based approach to mapping out and going through privacy and security uh, for an organization. So we're launching that this fall. Uh, we're really excited about that to see how that works with some of the companies we're working with. 
Oh, that's really cool. Is there some place that people should go to like sign up to learn more information about that or anything? Like I, we can certainly include it in the show notes. Yeah. Uh, so we have the website. It's leandatapractices.com. And then on the website, there is a contact form. And so that's probably the best way to reach out if you're interested. Nice. Very cool. All right. Last question. What is your biggest tip for someone who is looking to improve their privacy? And we'll just say their privacy online. We'll, we'll, we'll be very specific about it. Uh, well, first, I think you should use Firefox. <laughs> <laughs> nice job. Nailed it. Um, I, I really do. You know, we, we really are trying to do what's right by users for, Firefox, for privacy and security. And so if you're interested in improving your security online, that is one simple thing that you can do to start down that path. Um, and the next is, like I mentioned, use your power as a consumer to, to complain and to ask for things. So tell companies when you're confused. And that can be as simple as using the help and just sending an email. Someone is reading it. Someone is paying attention. And the more those notes come in, then those are small signals to the company to figure out, ah, actually, it seems like a lot of people are confused. So talk to your companies. And then I think starting to look at, you know, I don't expect people to look at the privacy notice, but when you are in the flow, you're working in an app, um, that could be from the very first thing. Most apps, this is a pet peeve of mine, they always require you to give your first and your last name on sign up. And that's before you've even done anything. Why does the company need to know my first and last name and who I am when I haven't even committed to what it is? Um, and so just start paying attention to those points in the product where you have a slight hesitation or you have a question. I think as you start to pay attention to some of those moments, you'll realize how many times that might happen. And I think that's important to, to start to share that. That's great. So Mika, thank you so much for coming on today. It was a real pleasure to talk to you. This was a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, we just, I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. I had a great time being on the show with you. So let's talk about the giveaway. Yes, we had quite a few entries in the end, which was nice. I was going through them all. Oh, come on. There were some great entries. Yeah, I really loved reading through these. You guys um, pulled it out of the bag with some really funny reviews. Okay, so Jeremiah said... I love 1Password and I've used it for many years. When I found out they had a podcast, I was intrigued, but hardly intrigued enough to hit subscribe. But as a <laughs> podcast addict and a glutton for punishment, I subscribed anyway. I have since been thoroughly surprised with how fun and entertaining it is. Definitely worth a subscribe. Five stars. Keep it up. Yes. Nice. I love that. Yeah, it's a good one. <laughs> Laura, Laura writing, she goes, I thought I had nothing I really needed to learn about 1Password. Then I listened to the podcast and it was surprisingly good. <laughs> I, I think my favorite one of the three is is this Jonas one, honestly. Anna, take it away. It's so good. Yeah. Jonas, he says, started listening to the One Password podcast to see if they talked about updates to the app. They mostly don't. <laughs> Can't stop listening, though. Surprisingly good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> I'm sorry we don't talk about updates enough, Jonas. We talked about updates today. It, it wasn't in the script, but, you know, we we, <laughs> we literally updated during the, the recording. Yep. And I am going to be dedicating our final episode this season to 1Password tips. So if folks have something you want to know about, send any questions to us using the Ask1Password hashtag, and we'll look to answer a few on that episode of the podcast. Nice. 
Uh, yeah, we're going to send some some stuff out to uh, the three people that yes. uh, that that won that one. So, um, congrats! Yeah, I I actually I have some exclusive one password socks. Um, so, oh, I almost wore those today. Someone might get get a pair of those. Damn, it's turning into sock season as well. I I asked Joan, uh, who who handles our swag at One Password. Uh, to uh, send me a few pairs of, of socks for this uh, for this meeting because you know um, <laughs> and Represent. I got more socks than I, like I, I know what to do with now I'm, I'm not sure my luggage uh, is going to be within weight <laughs> now I, I, it's just so many socks you could use them as mittens amazing as gloves uh, that would look odd in a meeting I feel <laughs> like um, if you turn up wearing socks on your hands ear warmers yeah yeah, or, or I could just give them away. <laughs> uh, uh, so, Anna, what the phrase? Well, talking of speaking German, we have a German phrase this week, and it is, you have tomatoes on your eyes. Can you do that in German? I could attempt to say it in German. Tomaten auf den Augen haben. Oh, that's got some good rhythm to it. Good melody. <laughs> <laughs> um, is, is this like you're bad at seeing stuff i don't know maybe maybe that's what you shout when you know someone hits into your car you got tomatoes in your eyes i wonder if it's if it's almost like um you're calling someone overly optimistic like like almost like rose-colored glasses like you you see you see the world you see the world through tomatoes (laughs) (laughs) what's the link with tomatoes being good because they're red like roses rose tinted okay i don't know I, i see I mean, I might be mocking you, and, and you've got it right. No, I love Rue's uh, explanation, <laughs> but Matt is slightly closer to the mark, really. So it is, you are not seeing what everyone else can see. Essentially, it has the same meaning as saying, you must be blind. So some people would say, if you overlook something obvious, especially if it's something you shouldn't have missed. Of course, like the, the etymology of this phrase is, is obviously... A, a guy who walked around with tomatoes in his <laughs> eyes and, and missed everything. <laughs> I, I enjoyed as well. I could see the mental image of, of what you had in, in your head when you were looking through tomatoes. Because in, in nowhere here does it say that the tomatoes are sliced. <laughs> yeah. So you were ma- making little glasses out of sliced tomato. That's correct, yes. Yes. <laughs> Which is just beautiful. Could be the next big thing. Who knows? <laughs> Anti-aging. Amazing. Right, guys. I gotta go and get some breakfast in a shower. All right. Sounds good. Thank you, everybody. Love you, Rue. Love you, Anna. Love you, Matt. Love you. Bye bye. Bye bye. Oh god. Bye-bye.